Please remain standing. Turn with me to Psalm 38. We'll read just the first four verses of this psalm. prayer of a man feeling the burden and the power of sin. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 7. We're going to read verses 7 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So, the law is holy, And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, well, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I want you to imagine with me a different sermon. Imagine, I'm not preaching to you from Romans 7. Let's imagine I'm preaching to you from Psalm 23, where verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And imagine if I started the sermon by saying, Well, obviously this first verse is teaching us uh, not to desire things that belong to someone else. It's teaching us not to covet. It says, I shall not want. You shouldn't want things that belong to other people. Okay. Now, is it true that we shouldn't covet? Yeah, it's true. It's the Tenth Commandment, right? That's obviously true. But is that what Psalm 23, verse 1 is saying? No. It's saying something quite different. It's saying, I shall lack for nothing. That's what it means. And so, by, by telling you Psalm 23, verse 1 means we shouldn't covet. Well, that's a true Bible teaching, no doubt, but it's from the wrong passage. It's not what that passage means. Maybe you could get there as like an implication, like an extended application. Well, because we lack for nothing, because God's provided everything we need, that's a good reason not to covet. That would be an application. But it, but it's just that. It's, it, it's implied further on down the road. Let's give another example. This is maybe a little more stark. So imagine I'm preaching on the wise men, Matthew chapter 2, and And it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And imagine I told you, well, when you go out and you look at the stars at night, you can rejoice exceedingly with great joy because it shows you the glory of God. It shows you how wonderful the Lord is and um, how good his creation is. And um, that would be a really good application from maybe Psalm 19 or Psalm 8, like we sang earlier. But um, not from the story of the wise men. That's just not... It's the right Bible teaching, again, from the wrong passage. It's not what that passage means. Even though what I would have said is is true all by itself. Okay. This morning we are taking up one of the more challenging passages of Romans. And I'm hoping to introduce you this morning to actually to two basic ways of approaching it. When I tell you at the outset that they can't both be correct, and I'm not going to present them equally. I'm going to tell you I, I believe one of them is, is correct. Um, but you also should know that you, you'll find good, reliable Bible teachers coming down on, on both sides, um, each with pretty good reasons for their um, point of view. What makes it so tricky is that there are at least two true doctrines that Paul might be teaching in this passage, in verses 14 to 25 in particular. They're both true doctrines. The the debate is over, which one is Paul teaching here? 
what is this passage saying? Um, so I'm going to do something a little different from usual today. I'd like to take a little extra time here at the beginning just to orient us to this passage, orient us to the different ways of reading Romans 7 so that you can understand and weigh different things that you might hear taught about it. And it can be especially disconcerting when you, when you maybe have a couple of different maybe um, sources of Bible teaching or instruction, discipleship in your life, and maybe two of them are saying opposite things about what this passage means. Well, everyone who's a careful student of this passage acknowledges that it's, that it's hard. There are good arguments on both sides. And I want to equip you to understand those issues, to weigh them uh, for yourself, um, and then I also want to prepare you for the fact that I'm going to preach this morning in a way that on this passage that might not be what you're used to, um, might not be what you've typically heard before. I don't know. But I also hope, ultimately, that we'll be able to get past those debates, those issues about this chapter, and that we'll be able to really to listen to it in its richness and experience the way it leaves us longing for the hope of chapter 8. And let me tell you, the next month or so, it's going to be a great, great month of sermon texts as we explore Romans 8 together. Romans 7 ushers us into that glorious chapter. Um, And hopefully we'll get a taste for that this morning. So first, a little more introduction here. So the basic question about this chapter that makes it hard surrounds... What kind of person Paul's describing, uh, especially starting in verse 14, kind of starting in the middle of the text for today? And that may seem like an odd question to you because, uh, especially if you you read this passage for the first time or maybe if you've been taught a certain view in the past, the answer seems kind of obvious. It seems obvious on a first reading that Paul is just talking about himself and his present experience of the Christian life. Um, He says, I don't understand my own actions. So I, he's talking in the present tense, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do. I do things that I hate. And, and many people would just say the most natural way to read this is just the way it sounds. That, that Paul's talking about his personal experience of living as a Christian who still struggles with sin. Now, the, the problem that comes up here is that there are a few things that he says in this passage that that don't seem to fit. They don't seem to fit other things that Paul has already said, even in Romans, about the Christian life. In this passage, Paul does not merely say, I'm saved, but I still struggle with sin. He says much more than that. It's much stronger. Verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I hope that you can compare that immediately in your mind with the last few sermons on, on Romans 6 and the beginning of Romans 7. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he describes himself as being captive to the law of sin that dwells in him. Verse 18, he says, I don't have the ability to carry out godly living. Now, I just ask you, does that sound like a Christian to you? Sold under sin. Captive to the law of sin. Unable to obey God. 
Didn't Paul just get finished saying in verse 6 of this very chapter, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Back in chapter 6, didn't he say, well, we'd, we'd um, died to sin, we've, been, we've, we've died to sin, we've been set free from sin, so that sin no longer controls us. We now serve Christ instead. And isn't he about to tell us in chapter 8 that now we have the Holy Spirit? So now we are able, we are able to live in a godly way that we, that we couldn't live out before. So for these reasons, many people think that when Paul uses um, words, I, me, myself, in this passage, he's not talking about his own personal Christian experience right now in the present. The idea is that this is a more rhetorical device, a figure of speech. It's almost as though implied as Paul saying, imagine for a second that I'm this, that I'm this person who's unable to overcome sin and live for God because I don't know the saving power of Christ. Imagine, if you will. What, what would that be like? What is that like for that kind of person? Let me put myself in that person's shoes for a minute. And do you see, people of God, how, how awful and frustrating this is? And here's the clincher, I think. Do you see how different it is from the life that God has given us now in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? Chapter 8. Okay. Now, lest you think, oh, well, well, then it's easy. I guess we should have that view. Well, it's a little more complicated than that because people back on the first side, remember the proverb says the first to state his case seems right until another comes and examines him. That's a good thing to bear in mind, to use caution before jumping to conclusions or adopting a, a new view or an old view. Anyway, people back on the first side say, no, this is, this is Paul's Christian life now. They say, well, we get your concerns, but if there are a few, things, a few things that Paul says that don't seem to match the Christian life, there are also some things that he says that don't seem to match a non-Christian's life. For example, verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That sounds a lot like the sentiments of the psalmist in Psalm 119, where he says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. It's clear that this person wants to do the right thing. I think we can say that. And the question is, can you say that about a soul that is dead in sin? Is that consistent with the biblical doctrine of total depravity? What we know scripture teaches in other places, that there's no good in us, that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God, as Romans 3 taught. Can you say these things about a person who hasn't been awakened to spiritual life through the Holy Spirit, who hasn't been regenerated? And so you see this tension here. Paul is talking using I and me and myself words about someone who both delights in the law of God, he says, but he also says this person is sold under or captive to sin. How do we put those ideas together in a way that makes sense of what's in Paul's mind here, what he's trying to get across. And here, here's the thing, again, that makes, this, makes it hard. Both camps or views, whatever you want to call it, both are, are seeing in this passage true teachings that Paul and the rest of Scripture affirms, affirm in other places. Okay? 
It would be a lot easier if one of these readings seemed obviously wrong. Thought, that absolutely contradicts these things the Bible teaches in other places. Um, But in fact, well, for example, Paul clearly affirms in other places that um, Christians continue to struggle with temptation and sin after we put our faith in Christ. So Galatians 5.17 is an example of this, where he says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And so there is this inward struggle in a Christian's heart between the influence of the Holy Spirit on the one hand and the influence of our remaining sinful desires. Sin has been defeated, but it hasn't been totally uprooted from our hearts. This power has been broken, but it hasn't vanished. Those things are definitely true. The question is, is that the teaching of this passage? So now I'm going to, if you haven't figured it out already, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I don't think so. I don't think so. And again, this is where I'm, what I'm saying might be different from what you've heard on this passage before, and it's okay. Um, anyway, that's a really important teaching about the Christian life, that ongoing struggle with sin. It's very important. I really think that Paul's concern in this part of Romans is much more about the contrast between life before and after conversion. His, his point in this context is about the, diff, the grand difference that it makes to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. The fact that we've died to sin, that we've been set free from it, and now we are living a a new kind of life in a way that we never could before. And I'm pretty sure, therefore, that when Paul speaks of I, me, myself, that he is indeed speaking rhetorically, imaginatively. He's putting himself in a non-Christian's shoes for a minute. He's wanting to show us that such a person's only hope is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 25. And then... He steps out of those non-Christian shoes at the beginning of chapter 8 when he tells us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, unlike the man he's kind of impersonating in chapter 7. There's one scholar, Thomas Schreiner. I really appreciated an insight of his on um, these two chapters, 7 and 8. He begins by looking at verses 5 and 6 of this chapter as kind of bullet points or an outline which the rest of chapter 7 and on into chapter 8 goes on to follow. I think this is very compelling. I think it's the best way um, to read the chapter, Um, even though I see very good arguments the other way. So while we were still living in the flesh, verse 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's the kind of experience versus the the following, the rest of the chapter um, unpacks. But now, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That is the message of Romans chapter 8. Well, in part, it's part of the message of Romans 8. Romans 8 jumps off from that point and goes on. Okay, so with that quite extended introduction, giving you the lay of the land, I want to show you now what it's like to walk through this passage 
on those terms that I've just described. We're going to start with verses 7 through 12, which I'm calling, A Good Law Meets a Bad Heart. A Good Law Meets a Bad Heart. So in verses 4 through 6, we looked at last time, two weeks ago, Paul uh, might have sounded a little negative towards the law of God, might arouse some concerns. Um, So he says that God's law aroused our sinful passions. He says it held us captive. Paul recognizes that this might leave people with the wrong impression of his understanding of the law of God, his love for the law of God, his respect, honor for it. And so in verse 7, he's very quick to clarify, listen, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the law of God. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. God's law is good. It's perfect. It's wise. Everything Psalm 19 says about how it's sure and right and clean and pure and lightning, true and righteous altogether, Paul agrees with all of that, no doubt. He wants us to distinguish, then, between God's good law, on the one hand, and our innate impulse to disobey it. Verse 8, it was the sin in his heart before he became a Christian that seized an opportunity through God's law. Sin seized the opportunity through God's law. So sin, he's saying, it's not only revealed by the law. God's law doesn't only point it out. Sin is actually provoked by the law of God. It sees God's law as an opportunity to sin more. Uh, more law means more opportunities to sin in more detailed ways. There's a, this, this dissonance, this irony, where the law promises life, quite frankly and freely, to anybody who will obey it. But anyone who ever tries to do that comes up hard again and again on their own inability to earn that proffered life. I'm thinking, for example, of Leviticus 18, verse 5, where God says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. But it's a big if, right? We cannot earn that offered life because we sinners can't live up to those terms. We can't do it. This is also a reason why uh, what we call legalism will never work as a strategy for living a better Christian life. A legalist is someone who works on the assumption that new rules, more rules will help us live more righteously. More rules will help me live more righteously. More rules means more right living. The fact is, rules are not the solution to sin. Rules are not the solution to sin. Because sinners are experts at taking rules and turning them into opportunities for further rebellion against God. But the problem is not with God's law. The problem is with us. The law, Paul says, is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not even strictly the law that kills us spiritually, verse 13. It is sin working through the law. It's our general inclination to sin meeting these various concrete descriptions of, well, here's some things that sin could look like. Those, remember, we talked about those lines in the sand where our, our, toe cro- our line-crossing hearts consistently want to put our, our toes across. Now, in verse 14, then, 
Now we get to the hard part. And it's hard in part because something you notice is up till now he's been speaking in the past tense. It's pretty clear that he's talking about his pre-Christian life, life before conversion, when sin took this opportunity through the law to, to kill him spiritually. In verse 14, he switches to present tense. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Again, reflecting my own view, I simply don't think that Paul, that the Apostle Paul, as he wrote this letter, was a man sold under sin. I just, I, I can't see that. The Apostle Paul had been set free from sin, just like every other Christian. The Apostle Paul now was a servant of Christ, not a servant of sin. And so I think that he would have expected that to be sufficiently obvious to his audience, especially after chapter 6, that he now expected them to hear this as a rhetorical device. He expected them to hear this as a figure of speech. Again, putting himself imaginatively in those non-Christian shoes for a minute. Now, verse 15 is where opponents of that view start to get some traction, though. And I'll admit this is a serious challenge. Um, Whoever this I, me person is, well, Paul says this is a person who wants to do good, who wants to do good and hates the opposite. We typically think of a totally depraved sinner, apart from Christ, not renewed by the Holy Spirit, as loving sin and hating what's good. You might say if we really believe in the bondage of the will, bondage of sinners to their sin apart from Jesus, we really believe that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, that nobody is righteous, that nobody seeks after God, thinking of Romans 3 again. Well, then can this person who wants to do the right thing really be a Christian? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say uh, yes, if we understand this properly. Um, If you just think about life, you think about the non-Christians that you know. Think about real people here. Not theoretical, like, people in a, in a textbook. Think about real people that you know. There are many ways that, that non-Christian people, dead in their trespasses and sins, unable to please God, no doubt. But non-Christian people can have a kind of appreciation, even an even a enjoyment or um, delight, a kind of delight in good things, God's laws in, included. So I've called this section, verses 14 to 23, Good intentions, but a helpless will. And I've put good intentions there in, in kind of scare quotes for a reason. Because you know what they say about good intentions. And the road to hell is paved with them. Okay, I think that framework is really helpful for thinking about in what way does Paul mean this kind of person delights in the law of God and wants to do good. We think in terms of those good intentions that pave the road to hell. What we're talking here about here is not righteousness. We're not talking about fulfilling God's standard. We're not talking about earning his approval. We're not tr- talking about a true, sincere desire for the glory of God. What we are talking about, though, is the remnants of the image of God in the hearts of all people, including the lost. Um, the fact is that most people are, are not going around trying to be as bad as they can possibly be, okay? Most people aspire in some sense to a kind of goodness, sometimes goodness as they want to define goodness, 
But it often overlaps, more or less, with God's law, at least at certain points. So most, most non-Christians out there are not saying, oh, the Ten Commandments are terrible. I think that we should murder. I think we should steal. Nobody's going to, to say that. Now, they might live like that's true because we have murderous, thieving hearts, right? But that's the whole point here. People approving of one thing with their minds, but then going out and living a different way because they are powerless, helpless, actually, to obey this law that they theoretically approve, unable to live up to their, quote-unquote, good intentions. So people are going to look at some of God's laws and are just going to say, you know, that, that's actually true. That's good. That's probably the way I ought to live. But if so, man, am I in trouble. I generally, I want to do the right thing. Wouldn't it be great if I could, you know, be a better person? I just can't seem to do it. Because I can also feel this contrary impulse that is dominating my life. The impulse to sin. The impulse to violate that law is what has enslaved me and I can't escape it. Okay? Well, somebody might say, oh, but it's a little stronger than that in verse 22. Verse 22 says this person actually delights in God's law. Here I think it's helpful to think about Paul's own experience and background as a Pharisee. Paul the Pharisee could have easily said that in a heartbeat. I delight in God's law. Um, In fact, that was a really big part of his life, studying it, committing it to memory, trying to live it out in incredible detail. But that kind of delight in God's law is, is not the kind that pleases the Lord. It's a legalistic delight, a relishing of those rules, the system, but not actually living for the glory of God. I believe that the kind of delight in God's law that Paul's talking about here is just another one of those good intentions that can pave a person's road to hell. Um, And this is actually something we all need to be aware of, people of God, especially religious people, especially people who warm the pews week by week in a church. People can approve of the law of God and enjoy being close to religious things and not be right with God. You don't have to have your will renewed by the Holy Spirit to kind of generally want to be a good person. And there are going to be many, many people in hell who went through life generally trying to be good people. Hell is not going to be full of Hitlers. It's going to be full mostly of pretty decent people. Understand that? As we count decency. Decent people though, who were trusting in themselves instead of trusting in Christ. God is not looking for decent people to let into heaven. He is looking for sinners who have despaired of their own ability to be decent and abandon themselves to the mercy of Christ alone. When we get to verse 24, then, this very famous verse that culminates the whole text, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, we should hear there, I believe, this is what's consistent with what I've said so far, is that what we should hear there is not Paul, the growing, struggling Christian, 
crying out for help in his ongoing struggle with sin, although we should do that. Rather, what we should hear is the desperation of a soul under conviction. We should hear here what it's like finally to despair of yourself, to despair of your own efforts and your own decency, and to cast yourself on the only true hope of rescue, which is through Jesus. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the answer comes. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A great pivot verse that's going to launch us then into chapter 8 next time. Okay. You've been working hard, sticking with me. Coming close to the end here. And I want to acknowledge again that everything I've just said about interpretation of Romans 7 is likely... Uh, different for some of you, maybe many of you, than, than what you've typically heard before. I also want to acknowledge that that is not merely an academic matter for you either, because many Christians take very great practical comfort from this text when they see in it a strong Christian man, an apostle even, that they see being very vulnerable and humble about his inward struggles with sin as a Christian. And I want to acknowledge there are definitely aspects of uh, things that Paul says here that could indeed be said about the Christian life. That's not wrong. Um, remember what I said earlier about finding right doctrines in wrong passages. Um, it's abundantly clear in Scripture that there is a war within you between the Holy Spirit and the remnants of sin in your heart. There's no denying that. And I don't want to take away from our keen awareness of that struggle or from the comfort of remembering that even godly men like the Apostle Paul shared that struggle with us. Absolutely true. But I also think that when we read this chapter, um, I dare to say correctly, or at least as I'm persuaded to, to see it, I think it's an even more powerful help to us in the Christian life. Because this chapter, I think, is inviting us to see how our life in Christ can be different from the kind of frustration that Paul's expressing in this text. It is assuring us that we do not have to be stuck in that frustration of not being able to obey God. It's teaching us that in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we have all of the resources of a good and gracious God at our disposal. We have new hearts, which do have, by God's grace and power, the ability to carry out what God has called us to do. Imperfectly, yes. With weakness and struggle, yes. But in Christ, things can be different now. Things can be different now than they would be without him. So I, I don't think God wants us to think of the normal Christian life, quote-unquote, as a life of, of moral frustration. Something else is a danger. God doesn't want you to use this passage as an excuse, an excuse to downplay your sin or to normalize your sin 
or worse yet, as an excuse to keep on sinning. And that can be a danger of saying, oh, you know, Paul struggled with sin too. Paul did things he knew were wrong. I guess I'm kind of like him. I guess I'm kind of stuck, and so I'll just resign myself that this is just how it's going to be. I wish it could be different, but it can't. And so you keep sinning. That is, however you read this passage, that is the wrong application. That is the wrong doctrine to take away from this text, let me tell you. Because God wants you to know that Christ Jesus, your Lord, has delivered you from the body of death. And he has ushered you into a new kind of life where you can serve him instead of serving your sin. That is possible. You are able not to sin, as Augustine put it, as a Christian. And that is good news for the people of God. Good news that we'll explore much more in future weeks in chapter 8. Good news is that Jesus died on the cross so your sins could be forgiven. But the good news doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Jesus has made you able not to sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to texts like this and we feel our limits, we feel our our weakness, our uncertainties cropping up. Thank you that um, you can help us. We ask that you would guide us. We pray you would please give uh, wisdom uh, through the Holy Spirit to each of us gathered here today to deal uh, frankly and clearly um, with this chapter of your word, uh, to be able to understand its meaning correctly um, as you intend it, uh, what you intend to get across to us. And in any case, Lord, we pray that you would help us in Christ <clears throat> not to sin because of all that you've done for us in him and because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Help us, Lord, and help us through the frustrations of coming up against our weaknesses and our sinful inclinations. Lord, we ask that you would empower us for that new kind of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.